You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Lord, I pray that the eyes of our hearts may be opened to know the hope to which you have called us, the riches of your glorious inheritance among the saints, and the immeasurable greatness of your power for those who believe. Amen. Today, we come in the lectionary cycle to the Transfiguration, that great mountaintop moment in the Gospels in which God shows Jesus for who he is. I do not know if this is your experience, but I often hear preachers take this passage and discuss how it really shows that God desires to transform us, that Jesus' sudden transfiguration somehow means that we will start shining at any moment. These sermons always leave me a little unsatisfied, though, because I think they miss the overwhelming emphasis of the passage. The transfiguration is foremost not about us, it is about Jesus. In this very chapter of Luke's Gospel, King Herod ominously asks, Who is this about whom I have heard such things? And here on the mountaintop, God gives Herod his answer. This is my son, he says. But before we can look at what this means, let's back up to the Exodus reading. The Transfiguration is a significant point in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic accounts of Jesus' life, but all three of these accounts are directly related to the Exodus account of Moses' encounter with God. Our reading from Exodus comes after God has delivered his people from slavery in Egypt, taken them through the Red Sea and into the wilderness to wander. Moses has just received the two tables of law from God and a renewal of the covenant. By giving the law, God tries to draw near to his people, but they shrink back from him. Moses, the great lawgiver of Israel, comes to the people of God with God's own words. And after speaking to God, his face is shining. But this is all the more reason for the people of Israel to fear. Moses has to use a veil to cover his face because God's own people cannot stand to look at his servant. And why should the people of God be afraid? Because the holiness of God is fearsome, it is consuming, it is convicting, it is too glorious to behold. I was in a coffee shop the other day, and I was sitting next to a pair of men, and I wasn't trying to listen to their conversation, but nonetheless, I heard them discussing their daughter's involvement in a campus ministry. They discussed their confidence in the ministry's leaders, and the uh, programming that was offered to their daughters. And they talked about how their daughters felt comfortable in this small group. And at one point, one leaned in and he said, they can get all these kids to come to this small group because, well, you know, it's not too churchy. There's not too much God. A church group that is not too churchy? A ministry group without God? Why would this be a good quality? Why would this attract students? What made this group comfortable? The people were afraid to draw near him. This verse in Exodus tells us everything we need to know about the human interaction with God. We cannot stand to be near him, to hear him, to even listen to his messenger. We naturally turn away from God because he is holy and we are not. Even when he gives us a way to know him, his law, we still cannot draw near. This is the primary problem of the human condition, and it requires a solution. And for this, we now turn to the gospel. In Luke, we find another mountaintop moment, 
with God again showing his glory, but this glory now appears in a new and unsettling way. Peter, James, and John follow their teacher up to a mountain to pray. And this is significant because in the Synoptic uh, Gospels, we find Jesus often sort of slinking off by himself to go alone to pray to the Father. But this time, he includes his three closest disciples. This story is therefore told from their point of view. And in the midst of Jesus lifting up his prayers to the Father, Peter, James, and John see something startling. Jesus' face begins to change, and his clothes begin to shine. Unlike Moses, this is not an indicator that he has been simply talking with God. Luke tells us that a cloud overshadows this little crowd on the mountaintop, and the Father himself identifies Jesus as his Son, his Chosen One. There is no escaping the implication of this. Jesus is not like Moses or Elijah, those two figures who are so important in Israel's history, but who are nonetheless mere men. Jesus shines with radiance not because he talks with God, but because he is God. In Exodus, the glory of God shines on the face of Moses. Moses reflects this glory to the Israelites. In contrast, Luke tells us in his gospel that the very face of Jesus is altered. His glory comes from within. He is not a mirror to glory because he himself, as God's very son, is glory. And while up to this point in Luke's gospel, we have caught glimpses of this reality. Think of the angels at Jesus' birth, or his miraculous healings, or his calming of a storm at sea. In this passage, his glory explodes. It cannot be contained. Notice, too, that is through the actual face of Jesus that the disciples see this glimpse of reality. In the Old Testament, God hides his face. The Israelites never see it, and they can never really know God. This is a significant missing detail in the Old Testament. Think for a moment about what a face tells us. Through it, we can actually catch a brief look at the inner person. When a person's face wells up with tears and becomes red, we know that they are sad. When someone has a bright glimmer in their eye and a broad smile, you know that they are thinking about something funny. Or think about Apple Corporation's new method of communication. I think the uh, FaceTime app is quite cleverly named. We use FaceTime for a deeper means of connection with another person because we can see their face. And here on the mountaintop, God gives us a face to communicate with. We see Jesus for who he really is, the divine Son of the Father, enfleshed in humanity like you and like me, but also resplendent in divine glory. The veil hiding this reality is torn in two. In a reversal of our Exodus account, in which Moses has to put on a veil to hold back the glory of God from the people, in this passage, that veil is ripped right in two, and the afraid disciples can do nothing but marvel at what they are seeing. Peter is so flabbergasted, so overcome with awe, that he makes perhaps one of the dumbest suggestions in the Bible. He says, let us make three tents. Really, Peter? Coming so close with the glory of God, the holiness of Jesus makes him want to somehow capture it, to extend it, to prolong the moment. But if the Old Testament tells us anything, it certainly tells us that the holiness of God cannot be contained. No human can in any way control it. It simply appears to us, and we can do nothing but worship. The disciples are astounded by not just Jesus' changing appearance, 
but the appearance of Moses and Elijah, those two pillars of Israel's religion. But at the end of the scene, Luke explicitly tells us Jesus is left alone. Moses and Elijah have disappeared. There is no room for the three of them in Peter's tents. The Father speaks from heaven to listen to his Son and to him alone. As the disciples learn on the mountaintop, we too have no one else to lean on, no other authority to look to, no other face to connect with, no one else to follow besides Jesus, who is revealed as holy. But Jesus does not stay on this mountain, as Peter so wants. The very way that Luke situates this story in his narrative reveals not only the glory of Christ, but his love for us. The transfiguration comes right on the heels in chapter 9 of Luke, and I encourage you to read all of it, of Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ of God. And right before our passage today, Jesus responds by predicting his rejection, suffering, and death. And then fast forward to the end of the chapter, and Luke tells us that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus' glory is directly wrapped up in his suffering for us. And this very transfiguration scene, we even hear this. For what do Peter, James, and John overhear Jesus speaking with Moses and Elijah about? His departure. The Greek used for that word is exodus. Again, taking our minds back to the Exodus account in which God acted to save his people. We see here at the height of his glory, when the disciples can just see who Jesus is, that even in this moment, his upcoming sacrifice is in mind. Jesus came to die for us, and this mission is evident in all moments of his life. As Peter, James, and John see, Jesus is not an ordinary man. He shines with the glory of God. But Jesus gives up this glory, wraps himself in flesh, suffers the course of a mortal life, and takes our sins to the cross where he gives himself up for us. As Paul tells us in that wonderful passage from Philippians, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He empties himself. He gives his glory up. He comes among us. And he dies for us. Traditionally, the church reads this transfiguration account on the Sunday right before Lent begins. And so here we are, right before Lent. And I think there is great significance and meaning in this. As we go through Lent and prepare to enter again into Christ's suffering for us on Good Friday and his victory over the grave on Easter, this mountaintop moment reminds us who this suffering, beaten, stricken man is. He is God's Son. He is holy. And He loves us enough to save us. We do not worship and follow a Lord content to stay on a mountaintop in glory, as Peter so desperately wants, one removed from our sin and suffering. Rather, this Jesus, whom the Father plainly identifies as His Son, comes down from the mountain to climb the hill of Calvary for us. How can we do anything besides love and obey this Son of God? Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. 
Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.